You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Hello, and welcome to an author debriefing from the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the museum's historian. Here at the museum, we get the most interesting authors, including journalists, scholars, former spies, and intelligence officers, coming in to speak with our visitors and answer questions about their latest works dealing with espionage, intelligence, and other national security issues. Please join me in listening to another of our selected hour-long author debriefings. Ladies and gentlemen, why don't we get started? Uh, welcome to the International Spy Museum. I'm Mark Stout, the historian here, for those of you I, uh, I haven't met. We are uh, joined today by Frank Rafalco. Uh, Frank studied at Mount St. Mary's College and the University of California at Berkeley. I'm a Stanford grad, and I think it's, uh, uh, I'm, 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 I'm nonetheless delighted to have a Berkeley grad here. Uh, before joining the CIA in 1967, which I imagine is a rarity these days for Berkeley graduates, I could be wrong, he served in the CIA for 32 years before retiring in the year 2000. Uh, Mr. Rafalco is a counterintelligence specialist. During his career, he served in two stations overseas and also in the National Reconnaissance Office's counterintelligence unit, including for a time as its acting chief. He was also chief of the National Counterintelligence Center's Counterintelligence Community Training Board and an advisor to the State Department's Overseas Security Policy Board. However, uh, from 1969 to 1974, he was part of the agency's Special Operations Group, the organization which ran MH Chaos, the subject of his book, his brand new book from uh, Naval Institute Press, if I'm correct in this. The book is MH Chaos, the CIA's Campaign Against the Radical New Left and the Black Panthers. Now, this is probably the best book out there on MH Chaos, which really stands up there with other operations like, say, Phoenix, as among the most controversial things that the CIA has ever done. So I think it's great that we have a, uh, a good, solid look at it now, particularly from somebody who was on the inside. Frank Raven, who uh, was the former head of National Security Agency's G Group, that was at the time their Rest of the World Group, said something uh, more than 20 years ago, that you cannot divide your intelligence problems neatly and cleanly into internal U.S. and external U.S. You have intelligence which is entirely foreign, and you have intelligence which is entirely domestic, domestic, but then you have the third category, which no one will recognize, which is intelligence which moves back and forth between them. And this is precisely the problem, I think, that Frank Rafalco is talking about in this book. This is a problem which we Americans have faced recently uh, in dealing with international jihadist terrorism. Many of the terrorists are outside the United States, most of them in fact, but many of those seek to come into the United States. 
A few of the terrorists are Americans, but they have linked to foreigners outside the country. Some of these links are merely ideological, and I'm probably misusing the word merely there. Uh, ideas have power. Uh, on the other hand, sometimes these links are, are finance, logistics, weapons, or strategy and planning. And sometimes we even have Americans who go overseas to spread terrorism. I just simply refer you in this connection to Anwar Al-Awlaki, a nice young man from uh, North Carolina, Carolina, Samir Khan, Adam Gadan. So as a country, we haven't really come up with ways of dealing with this problem that we're comfortable with, whether we're talking in the military realm, in the law enforcement realm, or in the intelligence realm. And I think that Frank's book can help us think about these intelligence challenges uh, through the lens of the past. So whether you think of MH chaos as a nightmarish example of what the CIA should avoid, or whether you think of MH chaos as a shining example of what the CIA should be doing, this book, I think, has something to tell us today. This book is not simply a tale about a bygone era, though it is that, uh, but it is also a book about today. So we are, I feel sure, in for a thought-provoking discussion. And without further ado, Frank Rafalco. I'd like to thank Mark uh, for, and the Spy Museum for inviting me here. And I see uh, some very close friends here. My daughter who flew in, and she lives in Texas with my granddaughter. is here to, to cheer me on here, I guess, <laughs> and uh, some other people in here. Before I begin, I'm going to answer a basic question you may have, is what the heck does MH stand for before the word chaos? And the publisher maybe put the slash in there because they said it sounds better with a slash, but in the agency it was called MH Chaos, and the MH is if you think of a bill you get in the mail or you send a bill back, you have a zip code on the bottom that gets it to that city to the right address. Well, that's what MH stood for. It's a diagram in the agency that meant this message goes to the CI staff at that time, not the center. And it goes to the Special Operations Group because of the code name CHAOS. So that's how we got our messages. And I would like to tell you that the messages that came in through this system, there were only three copies, and they all came to our office. So no one in the agency saw these messages because they dealt with Americans. And we took that very seriously. We didn't let any of our information out to anyone unless it was necessary. Now, people think that MH CHAOS is an aberration. But I'd like to go back and do a little history for you. I mean, first of all, let's talk about Teddy Roosevelt, who said, when compared with the suppression of anarchy, every other question sinks into insignificance. The anarchist is the enemy of all mankind, and, is, and his is a deeper degree of criminality than any others. So there are many precedents in American history for what President Johnson's did to request that the CIA investigate and determine if foreign governments or foreign intelligence services hostile to the United States was involved in directing and manipulating the violence that we had in this nation in the, early, in the late 60s and early 70s. So let's take a look at these preferences. I'm going to start with Abraham Lincoln because he implemented several procedures to deal with possible threats to the nation. He required the Postal Service to monitor the mail for treasonable correspondence, instituted new passport regulations for travelers to and from foreign countries, blockaded, of course, southern ports, suspended the writ of habeas corpus, and issued orders to arrest and detain individuals suspected of being engaged in treasonable practices. 
He accomplished many of these messages, or measures without any legal authority from Congress, which did not meet in a special session until July 4, 1861. Lincoln reasoned that the Constitution granted him the power to take immediate action to defend the nation's very existence if threatened by invasion or insurrection. He concluded that the civil courts would be at a disadvantage in trying to handle the political arrest that he considered necessary in combating the South's succession. Lincoln saw military tribunals as the answer to jailing those supporting the South through words and deeds who might otherwise be set free by a civil court by invoking the free speech amendment. Now, Lincoln, of course, had some apprehensions, but he overcame his fear of public reaction to his restrictions on civil liberties. He instituted a novel internal security system and came to believe it worked. Military arrests of civilians caused some mass indignation and much heated rhetoric, but really very little resistance or breaking the law. He reasoned that the arrested individuals were citizens of the Confederacy, blockade runners, foreign nationals, returning Southern sea captains and the like, which explained the lack of violent political reaction. And also, these people were not voters in the North, so you didn't have to really care about them. One might say that what Lincoln did had no bearing on conditions in the nation in the 1960s and 1970s. But Lincoln's action resulted in Congress amending the Oath of Allegiance. Now, if you recall history, the Oath of Allegiance was instituted by the first Congress in the United States in which American officials were required to support the Constitution of the United States. In the amended oath, he inserted the words, after support, protect and defend the Constitution and government of the United States against all enemies, whether domestic or foreign. Now, this oath placed domestic ahead of foreign enemies. As James Madison noted, perhaps it is a universal truth that the loss of liberty at home is to be charged to provisions against danger, real or pretended, from abroad. And then in 1901, we had President McKinley assassinated by a self-proclaimed anarchist. And a series of measures were instituted to stamp out the leftist revolutionary movement. This policy was expanded under President Woodrow Wilson and his efforts to quail domestic dissent during World War I. Now, if we all look at President Wilson and what we hear about him today, he's considered a championship champion of American ideals. So it was no surprise when he wrote a memorandum to the Office of Naval Intelligence on 3 August 1913, in which he just directed ONI to investigate un-American ideology. In 1950, he gave the same task to the Army. So in essence, Wilson wanted the military to decide who was a pure American and what the attributes of a non-American organization were. When they came to a decision, the military was to destabilize these non-American groups, but the difficulty with this is that the use of counterintelligence was not applicable to the threat of non-American viewpoints. And of course, if we all know our history, later on, Wilson unleashed Gen Attorney General Palmer to institute the Palmer Red Raids. Now, he was concerned with this decision um, because he thought there might be too much excess of surveillance, prosecution, and arrests. And so in a letter to Secretary McAdoo, he expressed these concerns. But let me say that Wilson was not worried about the rights of radicals 
so much as is worried that these actions might come back to haunt his administration politically. So, early in 1990, 1919, the United States was subjected to a barrage of historical warnings from pulpit, rostrum, editorial pages that the institutions of government and property in America were under attack by international revolution, and that the American radical movement was the communist conspiracy's cutting edge in the United States. The turbulence might have not led to such insistent appeals for action against radicals if the public were not already so predisposed. So this prejudice has been, just, been intensified during World War I by the Department of Justice persecution of radicals under the Espionage and Sedition Acts, which branded anyone who was against the war as pro-German. The majority of the country's ethnic, religious, and cultural minorities had embraced the war as a way into the American mainstream. So when radicals conspicuously rejected the call for national unity, it set them apart from the rest. The belief spread among self-consciously patriotic Americans that radicals, anarchists, communists, and socialists were all un-American, unpatriotic, and even treasonous. The period, again, is known as the Red Scare, which reached its highest climate during the bombings of several places in, this, in the thing, and which most dangerous one was the one on September 16th at the New York Wall Street area, which killed 38 people and injured several hundred. The Espionage Act was essentially a measure to strike at illegal interference in the war effort, so it was so worded that it could and was used to stamp out radical criticism of the war. The Sedition Act of 1918 was a less subtle device. Its purpose was to undercut both the performance and accuracy of undesirable activity. There was a clear implication that people were, util were utilizing speech as a means of gaining improper ends, and it had to be restricted. We could reasonably easily insert the anti-Vietnam War demonstrations, the bombings that occurred, and the burning of American cities during the period of the late 1960s and early 1970s into the above paragraphs because of many of the similarities. I can go on and point out additional periods in our history, but let us sum up by saying that President Lincoln, Teddy Roosevelt, Wilson, Warren Harding, Herbert Hoover, Franklin Roosevelt, Dwight Eisenhower, John Kennedy, Lyndon Johnson, Richard Nixon, and George Bush accepted and encouraged CI investigations of Americans. Okay. Each of these pre presidents turned to a specific federal agency or to several federal agencies to decide which was in the best position to carry out these investigations. Some may have been concerned about the civil rights of Americans, but each made the decision that protecting the integrity of American society was more important than the rights of those Americans who advocated destroying America. Now, we in the agency, after this was all over, suffered a lot of indignation by the members of the House and Senate committees, which rained down a torment of condemnation against CIA, beginning with the MH Chaos Program, because we investigated and kept records on Americans. So let's take a look at the situation in the late 60s. President Johnson, and I'm Unfortunately, the president has never written anything down about why he did this or what was his reasoning, but I'm going to try and think about for him. He was concerned about foreign influence in the anti-war movement. He, uh, and he had a lot of popularity at the time. He was, the, the war was very popular when he took over. He was drawing high ratings and, uh, from the public for his conduct of foreign policy. 
But soon the anti-war movement developed along with anti-draft, anti-ROTC, peaceful marches, turning violent riots, bombings, and other acts of violence. When the president saw this extent of these activities, and I have in the back of the book an annex which shows you all the bombings that occurred during a certain period of time in this country, it goes on for quite a few pages, you could understand why he was concerned. So he, he said, well, these things you know, had to be coordinated, and he suspected that communist professionals were behind it because he did not believe that the American youth, with its inexperience and na naivete, could be the driving force. How could a huge anti-war rally in an American city also take place on the same date that similar rallies occurred in Paris, Rome, Berlin, and other major foreign cities? And did not General Giap of the North Vietnamese military thank the U.S. thank the U.S. peace movement for the help it was giving him during the war? So why did he choose CIA? Okay. We had several presidential directives from Roosevelt, Truman, and Eisenhower, which gave the FBI the responsibility for investigating sabotage, espionage, and subversion in the United States. And yet, it was not the one that Johnson turned to. The FBI has always been a domestic investigative agency. It had no or limited resources overseas, and the only liaison it had at that time was through its legal attaches abroad, which mainly concerned with criminal activities. So, in addition, the Assistant Attorney General in charge of the Civil Rights Division in the Department of Justice and the Johnson administration, John Doerr, severely criticized FBI Director Hoover for taking too restrictive and unsatisfactory position of the groups of targets that should be subjects of counterintelligence interests. In 1967, the Students for a Democratic Society, the Black Panthers, and various other Marxist and violence-prone groups were causing havoc in the nation with racial and political rioting. So Dora penned a men, uh, memo to Attorney General Ramsey Clark that took Hoover to task for not taking a broad-spectrum approach to domestic intelligence collection, but rather his continued narrow focus on traditional subversive groups and those are suspected of having uh, specific, doing specific crimes. Most importantly, in many of the presidents where, precedents where the United States was threatened internally, there had always been a foreign angle. In World War I, it was the Germans. In the 1930s, the connections were Nazi Germany, fascist Italy, Imperial Japan, and the Soviet Union. President Roosevelt was so concerned about the growth, growth of these movements that he wrote the uh, executive orders that I told you about that told the FBI to begin collecting intelligence on them in 36 and 1939. After World War II, there were th these three of these foreign groups were changed, the Nazis, the fascists, and the Imperial Jan, but they were quickly replaced by Castro's Cuba, Beijing, and several third world states, which included communist North Vietnam. CIA Director Helms wrote a letter on the new left and racial matters in 1970 to Hoover in which he said that increasingly close connection between those forces in the United States and hostile elements abroad has been well established by both our agencies. I feel it would be in our mutual interest to determine how we can best employ our limited manpower, knowing this problem, which embraces bombings, hijackings, assassinations, and the demeaning of law enforcement officers is international in scope. 
So these historical facts probably caused President Johnson to go to the CIA, which has a responsibility for intelligence and counterintelligence operations abroad. And we were set up as a special operations group in CIA, in CIA, in CIA staff by Helms. And uh, Dick Ober was chosen as the man to lead this group. Okay. Now, did the Johnson and Nixon have the authority to ask CIA to collect information on Americans? The Supreme Court in a decision stated that the inherent powers of the president are said to flow from provisions of the president's constitution oath of office to preserve, protect, and defend the Constitution of the United States. Under Title III, U.S. Code, Section 301, the president is authorized to name and empower the head of any agency in the executive branch to perform without approval any function which is invested in the president by law. This authorization comes from his constitutional authorities. There are some individuals, mainly the ACLU sometimes, who says that we shouldn't have done anything until there was a violation of some law. Now, this is nonsense. It's like telling the doctor, don't, don't uh, operate on the patient for cancer after he's dead. You know, you could do that then. It's ridiculous. It's like, you know, or as Judge Predyman said that in the court's view, it would be sheer folly as a matter of government policy for an existing government to refrain from inquiry into potential threats to its existence and security until danger was clear in presence. So why did I write MH Chaos, you might say? I was a young officer. I, I was going to my second year, really, in the agency uh, when I was called to uh, see Jason, which I can't say his last name. I prohibited by the agency for telling you his last name, which is ridiculous. The man is deceased many years now. But, uh, yeah. And uh, so I was drafted into the special operations group. Okay, I didn't have a say, really, <laughs> to go there. You know, the, the CIA had at that time, if you were told to go there, you went there. And no ifs, ands, or buts. So I did this thing, and after it was finished, and I, had, I, I was sitting, uh, as I tell you, in the Hartsville Airport, when I saw the New York Times article, it really made me mad. It really burned me up. And I wanted to write a book, then and there, because I was really upset with the, the Times and the Rockefeller Commission and the Senate Investigative Committee, because they're basically attacking my integrity. And I wanted to really set the record straight because I didn't think that everyone told the, the full story of this uh, period. But I realized that I'm in my sixth or seventh year now in the agency, and I figured you know, if I try to write this book and send it up there, they're not going to be very pleased with me, and my career would be dead-ended. So after I finally retired from the agency, I began to write actually a history of American counterintelligence. However, a friend of mine who knew I was involved in MH Chaos said, why don't I write about this because there's no one else to do it. You were there and you could do it and get your feelings out there. So that's when I began to write this book, okay? And to tell you, the agency did cut out quite a bit in the book. It's not detailed there where they cut out. I wanted to leave that in there, but my publisher said, no, you need to let the book flow very nicely. So there's some stuff in there that the agency made me blank out, although I argued with them 
information is good 35 to 40 years of old age, and I didn't believe it was going to harm national security, to mention maybe a Cuban intelligence officer or some other information that I had. So, okay, I went along with their thing, and you could read, and I was, I was tell you one real example, which I call ridiculous by the agency, and if you were anybody's in here who still works in the agency, I don't care if you tell them that. There's an obituary of Richard Ober in the book. It comes from the Washington Post. He died on 9-11, the same 9-11 that we're all familiar with. I copy the thing word for word from the Washington Post obituary at the end of the chapter there. CIA made me take out two places where Dick Ober served. It's censored. I argued twice with them saying, why? Anyone could go to the Washington Post, pull up the microfilm that, that day for the obituaries and read about it. No, their answer was no, I couldn't use it. So uh, that's why I have some problems with the way they decided my book, uh, what they cut out. I decided to write the book in three sections. First section is I took the allegations made by the New York Times and tried to refute, refute all the erroneous statements and discuss the Rockefeller and Church Committee reports because they didn't tell the whole story. In fact, I was really upset with Frank Church when he first got on that because he stated he was not going to use the committee for political gain. Well, right after they, they held their hearings, what did he do? He ran for president. Fortunately, he didn't win. I might note that all the people that were involved in the investigation that ran for president, the only one who made it was Ronald Reagan. <laughs> So it tells you something, and they really didn't want him on the, a lot of papers didn't want him on that um, Rockefeller Commission. So the second sec section I decided, well, I'm going to tell you the rest of the story. I worked on those Black Panthers for five years. I met a Black Panther one time in uh, Los Angeles, Bureau Asset, who was going to go overseas. He never did, but uh, I, I met him. Uh, actually, the Bureau said uh, after Cleaver came back and became a born-again Christian, he was living in the Sanford University area, and the Bureau guy said, well, you want to go meet him? And I was still working at the agency, and I was still undercover at that time, and I said, no, I better not, <laughs> better not but I would have loved to have talked to him because I would have asked some of the points I, I knew existed here. My point in writing the thing was to show that these were not the innocent Americans that Frank Church and everyone else said they were. These were hijackers, police killers, bombers, violent agitators, and self-proclaimed revolutionaries, what we would characterize as terrorists today. Now, for example, between 1971 and 73, these terrorists were known to be responsible for 152 wounding of police officers and 43 deaths, as well as wounding 53 civilians and 22 deaths of civilians. In 1973, 13 police officers were killed in direct confrontation with individuals connected with these revolutionary organizations, and an additional 16 officers were wounded during such confrontations. So they were not the peace-loving people we think of, okay? Secondly, the CIA would not be interested in any of these people except they started going overseas, and that's where we could collect information on. They were meeting with representatives of North Vietnam, North Korea, the Chinese, and all that. And uh, Cubans, of course, and Arab terrorists. So let me just highlight a few of these groups. The Communist Party of the United States originally organized the Student Mobilization Committee. 
It was one of the largest and one could say an effective campus protest group during the Vietnam War. Within three years, the Socialist Workers Party, the youth arm, the Young Socialist Alliance, took control of the committee. And although the American Communist Party lost control, the Student Mobilization Committee continued to carry out Soviet, North Vietnam, and Viet Cong interests throughout the Vietnam War, and that was the defeat of the U.S. military forces when the United States was trying to prevent the takeover of South Vietnam by the Communist North. Many of the civil disturbances that occurred in 1969 and 71 were partly motivated by the anti-war and anti-establishment activities. Now, there was a creation of the Venceremus Brigade by the Weatherman faction of the Students for a Democratic Society, and it was ostensibly to go and cut sugarcane in Cuba. Now, I don't know if the Cubans didn't have enough people to cut sugarcane there, but so we saw hundreds of Americans going to Cuba and it was reported that these young people were indoctrinated in Marxism and inundated with pro-Castro propaganda. It was also reported that selected members of each Vincent Ramos Brigade were trained by Cuban intelligence to collect information on various subjects in the United States as well as in guerrilla warfare and terrorism. Now, did we prove anyone was ever recruited? I don't know of anyone that had was come forward that they, they were actually recruited there, but we had reports of that, okay? So they were interested in that. Now, the Students for a Democratic Society was originally established as a very liberal, very pacifist-type organization, but eventually evolved into a very violence-prone revolutionary-type organization. Mike Klonsky came to head the organization and declared himself a Marxist revolutionary working to overthrow American society. When the Weatherman Underground Organization, the Weathermen, which they're known by, took control, Mark Rudd became its leader. He later became a fugitive in justice. One survey of the radicals in the 60s stated that more, than, more of them have entered two fields, law and teaching. Now, look at Bernadette Dorn and Bill Ayers. Previous members of the violent Weathermen are now teaching. Okay? The Weathermen claimed responsibility for a series of bombings that killed some innocent people and caused millions of dollars in damage to property. Now, I was telling Mark or someone before me, no one ever, no, nothing ever happened to Bill Ayers despite going, he went on the ground, his wife went on the ground, they came back, nothing happened to them. They weren't arrested, they weren't prosecuted, nothing, you know. Eldridge Cleaver, which I talk about the Black Panthers in a moment, came back to the States finally, uh, contacted the Justice Department, made some deal, and he never served another day in jail. I say the Black Panthers for last because this is my, my baby, if you want to call it. I looked at them, and it was, they were one of the most violent groups. And Eldridge Cleaver uh, disappeared, landed in Cuba. Uh, and when he was in Cuba, believe it or not, he decided that he was going to uh, take a page from Che Guevara, and Fidel Castro, and return to the United States clandestinely, go up into the Rocky Mountains and lead a guerrilla warfare against the United States from there. Of course, the Cubans would never allow it. Uh, they didn't want the United States coming and invading them, which they always feared. And so he had a lot of problems with the Cubans, like other uh, black Americans who went there. Uh, they, weren't, they were received, but they, not, they weren't that well treated. So the, the Cubans had to get rid of him. 
And so they gave him a false passport. They put him on a Cuban plane. They flew him into Algiers clandestinely under the false name. The Algerians, Algerians didn't even know they were, they were there. And so um, it took him a while, but he made some friends there. Elaine Klein is in my book. It got some people in the Algerian government to support having Cleaver take up residence there and open an information office <clears throat> and let him in there, although the Algerians said, you're really not a revolutionary, you know, international revolutionary group. You're mainly a local group back in the States. So, but they did. And from there, Cleaver went to North Korea, North Vietnam, China, a um, couple times. Um, and he had a bunch of Panthers uh, arrive in Algiers where he took responsibility for them. A couple of them were hijackers that ended up there. And that, in fact, uh, the only one that really came back, the hijacker was Byron Booth. He came back to the States after living in, in Tanzania, I believe, for or one of those countries in the mid-Africa region after he left Algiers. Uh, he was dying anyway. He came back and he's now in, uh, in prison in California. Uh, where he tells an interesting story, which we had in the past, that Cleaver had, had murdered one of the Black Panthers in Algiers, Clinton Smith, for having an affair with his wife. We had that information and gave it to the Bureau. Of course, we couldn't prove anything. And I don't think I'd spoil anything from the agency to tell you that we learned that from Byron Booth when he was in Algiers, and now he said it again when he came back to Los Angeles. So. He actually was still telling the same story, so there's probably some truth to that because we never found Clinton Smith anywhere. Okay, we didn't find any smoking gun, okay? Now, we didn't find that anyone was really controlling anyone or doing that, but, you know, it's hard to convince politicians uh, that they don't have a problem if they think one exists. So how much smoke does, makes a smoking gun? The evidence gathered by us in the Special Opera Operation Unit did not present a, a, smack, a smoking gun, but as a former colleague of mine said, it did have a certain glow about it. So let me summarize that glow. We had Cleaver in Cuba, Cuban support for his plan and initially to go to the Rockies and conduct a thing. They gave him a false passport. They took him on a plane there. Um, the Algerians gave him several residents in Algiers, let him travel out of the country and come back in. He had no American passport. He says in his book that he stole the, uh, the stamp from the U.S. Uh, interest office to stamp passports there. Um, never got away with it. We knew about it. And uh, anything with those numbers were on the watch list. So, but he said that helped. He said that he, the Germans helped him do false passports, but he never really had a full, he traveled on a travel document provided by the Algerians, basically. The Soviets were funding international peace conferences. They funded travel on Aeroflot for a lot of these people to go to these conferences. And we have uh, former KGB officers, uh, Lunath, who said Soviet intelligence helped fund just about every anti-war group in the United States and abroad using front companies to hide the fact that funds came from them. So we had information on contacts between the North Vietnamese, the anti-war activists, and their influence on them. And um, so that's just some of the examples we had that flowed into our unit from various sources, from articles in the press, and from various liaison services. Now, we went to President Johnson and Nixon several times and told them 
there's nothing here, and they said, go back. You know, so we had to go back each time and kept doing it until finally the war was winding down and all, everything just collapsed all of a sudden here, so we were done with. The third section of my book shows what happened to counterintelligence. We suffered quite a bit. Morale in the agency uh, was down because we didn't get a fair hearing. Ober told me that when he testified before the church committee, the members of that committee just didn't want to listen to him. They had their own agenda and they were basically unreasonable. After Angleton was ousted and he was blamed for MHKS, I could tell you that uh, Mr. Angleton was not in charge of MHKS. In fact, all the reports of the White House didn't even go to Angleton. They went directly from our office to Dick Helms to the White House. John Dean and, and uh, another person in there. Angleton, Angleton wasn't going to bother with these. He had other things that, uh, more important to fry than, than us. Uh, so he wasn't. In fact, uh, in my book, I even tell you that Ober at one time was told not to tell Angleton or anyone else about something he was involved in. And finally, he got permission from Helms to do so. So Angleton was kept in the dark on a lot of the things. I, the only thing Angleton probably was interested in was in the slots we got for our positions because he figured after this and chaos would close down, he would get these slots and increase the size of his, his staff, which is very small, okay? So, uh, we had the thing. We had a lot of organizational uh, def deficiencies multiplied since 1975 because of congressional investigations, executive orders, and above all, because of the serious decline of U.S. CIA capacity in the CIA and the FBI. This was the conclusion of many specialists who attended the third meeting of the Consortium for the Study of Intelligence. It pointed out that the most difficult obstacles to U.S. counterintelligence were the Pacific laws, judicial opinions and regulations, enjoying the force of law which collectively created multiple disincentives to effective counterintelligence, to totalitarian laws, court cases, presidential orders, guidelines, interpretations, which everyone had to follow, became the norms. Okay, and it produced a legal and legislative climate which hampered counterintelligence performance. Congress, of course, takes no blame for handicapping counterintelligence after its 1974 investigations and by the uh, subsequent presidential executive orders uh, because they wanted to rein in the rogue CIA, as Senator Church characterized this. It was interesting that four years later in 1978, the House Intelligence Committee in his first annual report, expressed its concern that the United States' defenses against penetration by foreign intelligence services may have been lowered well beyond an acceptable level. Well, no kidding. The next year, 1979, the Senate Intelligence Committee in his report said that an extraordinary counterintelligence effort was required to meet the threats and dangers posed by hostile intelligence services. And in 1981, the Senate said there was a continuing need for improvement in counterintelligence, including funding, and the committee was concerned that the country might lack adequate technical counterintelligence as well as manpower. What did the Congress expect after taking us over to Coles in 1974? You know, nothing was going to be very happy with us who were in counterintelligence because we had all these new rules and regulations. Now we had to uh, jump through. So when Casey went in 1981 before the Senate Intelligence Committee, as part of the confirmation hearings, one senator asked him, how would he improve counterintelligence? Casey replied he was very concerned about it, and part of his reply, he said that he understood that counterintelligence has been severely diminished by the loss of experienced people 
and it was one of the first things he had to rebuild. Hmm? Yeah. Okay. So there were a series of studies done relating to CI produced by the President's Foreign Intelligence Advisory Board, CIA, our Inspector General, and everyone else who got into the act. And there were five themes regarding the evolution of American CI and security problems. The first was that a career in CI was held in low esteem by CI management. I could tell you this personally. I suffered five years for being in chaos. Um, and it was the legacy from personal and organizational reaction to the Angleton years. And there was a very overwhelming perception within the Directorate of Operations that recruitment was the only path to promotion and because CI work was difficult and its success is infrequent and unheralded. I worked with a guy who would not even target a hard target, not, in, not even a Soviet. He would go after the easy targets as he said the best way to get promoted is to make a recruitment. You know, it didn't matter who he recruited, I guess. Uh, but <clears throat> second was the ambig ambiguity as to who was really in charge of counterintelligence at CIA. A disconnect concern between the counterintelligence center, which the staff became, and the office of security, and what was responsible for CIA matters. And this happened in the Ed Howard case. Uh, office of security ran that, did the case there, never informed uh, the CIA staff about Howard's problems. And that left him the bolt, and the Bureau took it out on CI <clears throat> because we didn't tell them ahead of time, but we didn't know some of the things were going on because Office of Security wouldn't tell us. So, so the tension there between the FBI and that, it was even dated before that, but uh, that really caused some problems there. And there was some people who said CI's information is not being uh, disseminated enough throughout the uh, all the offices, but we were operating on a need-to-know basis at that time, and then we should go back to it. And that were some of the weaknesses, okay? Okay, and I'm going to go and kind of sum up the thing. Wall Street Journal, basically, also in an editorial, said that uh, a lot of the problems that we face in counterintelligence go back to the 1970 witch hunts of the church committee. Americans need to understand that a key reason we don't have the intelligence needed to thwart ter terrorism is that we have spent many years actively discouraging good agents from getting it. Okay. Now, <clears throat> what happens? One has a look at President Obama's approval of the drone attack that killed al-Awaki, an American citizen in Yemen. American Civil Liberties Union, I could always count on them. Far-left critics and libertarian right, including a few senators, including one running for the president now, has harshly criticized the president for his actions, saying it violates the Fifth Amendment and the Constitution because Alawaki was deprived of his life, liberty, and not afforded due process of the law. Now, most American people support the president's action. However, it should be remembered that what, what officials put Al-Awaki's name on the CIA's kill list? CIA officials, of course. And it was probably the CIA that made the request to go after Al-Awaki with a drone. And today they may be safe their because their actions were critical to national security, but I bet in about 20 years it may not be. They may discover tomorrow their decision to be unlawful and decried by the liberal media, Congress, or in the constitutional rights area. You've got to remember that after uh, MHKS and the 
Bureau's COINTEL program, 120 FBI agents were hauled before grand juries in the Carter administration and several top officials prosecuted. Others had large money judgments assessed against them in civil suits for alleged constitutional rights violations. So that basically, I have no doubt that my book will not change any minds about MH chaos. I have no illusions about this. But I think the country owes its intelligence and counterintelligence officers to be free of doubt and fear of any criminal or civil liability for activities taken under presidential approval to protect and defend the national security of the United States. And that's the point I wish to make with you. You, you need to be concerned about who you elect for president, that he picks the right people to run the intelligence services to do the right thing. And that concludes my remarks. And if you have any questions, I guess, uh, Mark. Thank you very much. I hope you enjoyed this author debriefing. We'd like to know if you have any questions or comments about it. You can get in touch with us through email at spycast at spymuseum.org. That's spycast at spymuseum.org. We look forward to you joining us again for another of our author debriefings, and thanks for listening.